It's time for a healthy breakfast. The number one chocolate. For two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. He likes it. When I talk to people about certain peppers, it's very much like a secret club. I'd say the Chimayo pepper of northern Mexico. It's a little shriveled up chipotle pepper called Marita. It, 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 was, it was a Halloween thing, yeah. right? It was ghost pepper Halloween <laughs> chips. Yeah. And my God, uh, I, I know this is a podcast, but even on a podcast, I can't really explain oh, uh, what that did. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I am Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm Raj Patel, a professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today, our secret ingredient is chili peppers. We'll talk with the hot pepper man himself, Gary Nabham, author of Chasing Chilies, Hot Spots Along the Pepper Trail. Stay with us as we talk about everything from climate change to peppers and masculinity, plus so much more. This is The Secret Ingredient, produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Why would we be talking about peppers? Like, what's at stake with peppers? Who really cares? I like peppers. Let me just put it out out there. But peppers matter to me. Um, but for medicinal purposes, because you like you're like oh the serrano. Yeah, occasionally, I'm sick, I like and my have... bowels purged. Um, <laughs> but also because they well they 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 sort of bellwether of uh, of everything from climate change to biodiversity. Plus, they add flavor. Um, you know, it's 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 one of the things that white people eat to try and be more like people of color, and it, it always makes me feel <laughs> mighty that I can uh, that, that it's it was part of my my culture growing up. But I, I think it's just to 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 care about and have an opinion about um, peppers beyond the sort of Schofield index of how hot things are is to open yourself up to a world where what matters is. Uh, the culture in which a, a pepper can feature, and the kind of uh, climate and the, the, the growing conditions in which, pe- you know, in, in which allow peppers to thrive. And I think what's interesting about Gary is that he has the kind of big brain that can stitch together both the kind of ethnobotanical story about where peppers come from and uh, the long histories of the, of peppers, uh, but also think about cultivation and think about things as big as uh, climate change and capitalism. And, you know, another thing that I think is really interesting about them is that they've they've really entered American food. They've really become a big part of U.S. food. We have, we have salsa, which are sort of spiced up with peppers. Um, and, they, you know, we've got a, a famous restaurant chain that's now struggling called Chipotle, which is a famous um, Mexican chili pepper. Um, and one of the things that that is at stake here with this is that as this food moves into and becomes a sort of American mainstream um, item, that the cultivation of it has been transformed. Mm-hmm. And let me just um, just give a quick example. And uh, and that is that there was a um, there's a Mexican seed company called Seminus that um, that cultivated seeds, vegetable seeds, and came up um, in the 80s and 90s and um, became a rather large company in Mexico and went international. And um, the the owner of the company decided that if he was going to take his company global, he needed to have a very accessible hot pepper. 
Um, and so he uh, set to work on breeding uh, peppers like jalapenos and serranos that have become very famous in the United States to have less heat to them. And so he developed these whole lines. And uh, Monsanto bought Seminus sometime in 2005. In the, 2005 yeah. And now it is the biggest vegetable seed company in the world. And it presents this vision of what the pepper is that's very different from what Gary presents. It presents this sort of monolithic, uniform, um, you know, accessible to the most amount of people kind of vision of pepper agriculture. And what Gary is doing in, in his work, both in the U.S.-Mexico border down in Arizona, but also in his work in the Middle East, in, in, in Lebanon, and in, and, and in Syria, is he's identifying old breeds of peppers that have become very entwined in particular cultures over long amounts of time that are now under threat from climate change. And to hear this sort of Monsanto exec tell it, it that stuff doesn't really matter because we've got these very hardy seeds that we can grow mass, mass quantities of that will produce this sort of very uniform and palatable pepper. It won't be too spicy. Um, and I, I think that is sort of the counter vision to what to what Gary is doing. And without that kind of work happening, um, then Monsanto wins and you get this, this sort of uniform pepper vision. As soon as we started talking about it, I was thinking to myself, yeah, but how can you take how hot can you take your peppers for real? You know what I mean? And just thinking about this question, we're talking about peppers and thinking about like that is a mark of something. A mark of your authenticity, your relationship to, you know, how virile you are, how whatever it is, you you have this relationship. We have this relationship to peppers that's kind of like I can take them hotter than you, or I can eat this habanero yes. pepper, or I can survive this. And um, and the funny thing is, is that when you open this market and you you say you kind of whitewash it and mm. take away the hotness value and make it mainstream. What do you do to those conversations? You know, you kind of just take the masculinity. Yeah, how are, <laughs> how, are, how are we expected to you perform? Emasculate. How are, we, how are we expected to perform gender? Exactly. To perform male gender with how these sort of we? like limp, um, you know, not. Um, That's right. Uh, not very spicy got all chili this toilet peppers. paper in the freezer for no reason now. That's, <laughs> I, I keep coming it? back to that. Well, no, but, but, it's really uh, amazing. Ghost, I never knew that I, I, trick. You know, after I I I bought a bag of ghost pepper, yeah. uh, what what are these? It, it, it was it was a Halloween thing, yeah. right? It was ghost pepper Halloween <laughs> chips. Yeah. And my God, uh, I, I know this is a podcast, but even on a podcast, I can't really explain oh, uh, what that did. Point being <laughs> that um, the, the, no, but but, but the, the idea of you know basically now that the, the, these these chilies are collapsed into the dimension of how hot is it or how pretty is it and how uniform is it? And, and th those, those dimensions of uniformity are just about, is it this kind of uniform red color or is it, you know, uh, and you know, how, how precisely can we tell you how hot it's going to be? Um, as opposed to appreciating that actually peppers are, have this just amazing range of flavors. And in order for that to happen, you need to grow them in soil, not in the hoop houses that one might want to. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the way that, peppers get to taste and get to taste in a rich, which is a huge span of different kinds of ranges of, of bitterness and of sweetness and of saltiness. I mean, it's just all there. And all of that disappears under the industrialization of the pepper. And then when you think about Raj's remarkable statement about to toilet paper in the freezer. Yes. 
if you're if you're slow burn one that way. If you're if you're if you're breeding if you're breeding peppers specifically to ramp down their heat, I also want to wonder what else you're sacrificing. Like what is in that hot chili pepper that this seed company that got bought by Monsanto, when they ramp that down, what else are they ramping down? What mm. n- nutrients are they ramping down? What um, what other parts of the food? Because we have, as a culture, there's a bit of fear of spice, right? Well, this would be white people's culture. That's <laughs> it. I'm, I'm I mean, saying. that's totally it. It's like <laughs> that is a very white thing. Because when you think about ethnicity and somebody says, oh, let's spice it up or like let's you know add mm. some flavor to it, Typically, they're talking about adding color, adding people of color. Right well, now. no, but, but but just to bring that full circle, of course, you know, the the, the, the one of the important industrial uses of that spice, um, the, the the key ingredient is capsaicin, which is um, that's that's used in pepper spray. Um, so you know, it, it, it's you know, it, it comes full circle yeah. um, to be sprayed in the eyes of protesters around the world, uh-huh. um, and uh, and I think that there's, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, of course, the the the, the big themes of uh, the secret ingredient are capitalism, colonialism, and death. But of course, you have to bring in the police uh, at some point. And the, the, I don't know the, the the idea of the industrial use of this spiciness as being the thing that you put into yeah. the eyes of people who are standing up against uh, against state power. I think is just that, that's just that's just the the, the the final insult. So uh, today's show is about chili peppers, and we have with us today Gary Nobhan. Gary is the author of many books, including Chasing Chilies, about the sort of hot pepper trail in the, in the United States, tracing it from New Mexico through Louisiana and all the way down to Yucatan, Mexico. Um, he has also written about chili peppers in the Middle East, and we're very glad to have you on the show. And Gary, why don't you start us off by talking us through um, where chilies first got cultivated, how they first came into the, into the human diet, and let's just start there. Well, I'm in love with chili peppers and use any excuse to write about them or talk with others about them. And why that is is that they're the most popular spice or condiment in the world, but they're also a vegetable, a medicine, uh, treatment for cancer and cholesterol, and deeply rooted in our culture, uh, both in the old world and the new world. I think what has been exciting for me has been working with a team from Mexico, the U.S., and Belgium the last few years on tracing the origin of chilies back to a place in Puebla and Oaxaca, Mexico, in the transvolcanic belt where the Sierra Madre corridors come together. And we've used linguistic and genetic and archaeological and biogeographic evidence to determine not only where chilies originated, but what cultures were probably the first cultivators of them over 5,000 years ago. So, Gary, one of the... um joys of reading your work is that you're not only an enthusiast about plants but precisely that relation between the the human the plant the biological and the uh, the sort of spiritual world um and i'm going to ask you a few questions about that later on but for for now i mean just thinking about your your sort of odyssey on the hot you know the hot spots on the pepper trail i, I wonder if you can talk about the link between peppers and climate change um which seemed uh, i was surprised that, that 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 was the direction that you were going to uh, take uh, your your study of peppers and I, I wonder why you did that and and what you can tell us about it 
Well, thank you for that great question, Rush. I've been interested in how widespread species have been diversified by indigenous and peasant farmers around the world into locally adapted ecotypes or land races, what Americans call heirloom or heritage varieties, and how those are very tightly adapted to a particular place and even to a particular habitat and culture. But that very adaptation makes them vulnerable to climate change. So we have the paradox that there's enormous interest in preserving heirloom vegetables now everywhere in the world, really, and yet because they're so well adapted to particular conditions in particular habitats around the world, they're extremely vulnerable to how climate change is shifting temperature and rainfall patterns as well as pest diseases and predators. And so we have this really interesting uh, paradox that you'd think that uh, being well adapted to your place uh, would be a great asset, and yet it's also a vulnerability that uh, peasant cultures, agrarian cultures around the world are um, struggling with because they don't want to lose their favorite peppers, yet they have to adapt their uh, growing conditions to fit um, the plant's requirements, and those growing conditions are very much being changed by catastrophic climatic events. And when you were researching that, what I mean, what, what most surprised you? What, what did you? I mean, what, I mean, you presumably you, you understood the sort of general thrust of how climate change was was altering the environment and the ecology in, in which these peppers were grown. But but was there anything on the trail that most took you by surprise? Well, I was surprised in a number of ways, and in this case, what struck me the most is that farmers were deeply concerned about how introduced pests and diseases were affecting their crops. They know how to adapt to, to some extent to drought and water scarcity and uh, temperature ranges. But when a new pest or disease ends up on your doorstep or in your garden or field for the first time and you have no information about it, your traditional ecological knowledge that most farmers anywhere in the world uh, have distilled and carried with them is disoriented, at least temporarily, and then they begin to use their problem-solving skills to figure out ways to deal with these new pests and diseases. So in the, in the literature that most Americans read on climate change, scientists are telling us about how icebergs and glaciers are more rapidly melting, how we can expect heat waves more frequently in the summer and catastrophic storms like hurricanes. But farmers are not only noticing but are deeply affected by the pests and diseases that are suddenly coming into their fields and gardens. Gary, I, I um, wanted to get an update from you, and that is um, in 2010, when I was food editor at Grist, you wrote a great piece for me on uh, on the Aleppo on Aleppo pepper and right. uh, being under threat from climate change and, uh, and other forces. And Aleppo, of course, being a part of Syria, um, and having been in the past couple of years a site of the various, you know, the, the civil war in Syria, I wonder if you can tell me um, how Aleppo pepper is is faring through all of that. Um, and just so so people know, it's an incredible condiment. It's it's not too spicy, 
but it's sort of this rich red dried pepper um, that you can sprinkle on food before you cook it, sprinkle on food after it's done. And it just adds this um, kind of slightly smoky, slightly sweet, a little bit of extra spice to food that I I just love and um, was heartbroken to hear about its its trouble. Well, thanks, Tom, for remembering uh, that article and the story behind it. Uh, Both Aleppo peppers in Syria and the Urfa pepper in Turkey have been dramatically affected by the inner Nicene conflict in Syria that is of course, spilled over for dramatic consequences in Turkey and Lebanon as well. So uh, Aleppo peppers and, to a lesser extent, Urfa peppers are still sold in the United States and in Europe well beyond their natural range. But it's, from what I understand, most of that production was yield stockpiled uh, before the, the conflicts grew so great. One uh, commentary to that Grist article pointed out something that I think was uh, valid, that it was not just climate change directly that was affecting uh, the decline of Aleppo and Urfa Urfa peppers uh, near the Turkey-Syria border, but also um, water politics of denying what you and I would call water justice issues that... that, uh, uh, powerful um, constituencies were uh, keeping water from reaching peasant farming areas, including those of the farmers who grew Urfa peppers and Aleppo peppers for local consumption and export as a way to sort of uh, control and degrade living conditions for the farmers themselves. So it was not just directly drought that was affecting that area, but also the withholding of irrigation water, and of course the whole Aleppo market that was one of the last places in the world that the area around the market where Jews and Muslims and Christians worshipped at the same place has been completely destroyed, and I don't think we see any resolution to to that tragedy in the near future. The valley where my family's from in Lebanon now has for Syrians, for every Lebanese resident, and I doubt whether most of them had the capacity to take their Aleppo chili seeds along with them before they had to flee Syria. Right. So it's a it's a enormous tragedy and many dimensions to it that we can't discuss here. Chili peppers seem to me as incredibly resilient plants and also incredibly diverse. There's so many different kinds of chili peppers. So it seems like a, a foodstuff that will probably do pretty well in climate change. Am I right? Can, can, you, can you talk about that? Chili peppers as a whole will do incredibly well in climate change as long as we continue to exchange seeds between one another without corporate intervention that is controlling intellectual property rights of those seeds. And so the key thing is, is maintaining um, reciprocal and voluntary access to chili resources. But if you've selected a variety that does relatively well compared to the soils and the prevailing pests and microbes in your area, Tom, so I think these themes of resilience and diversity that run through 
my own work and both of your work uh, have larger messages to tell us about how we can all survive and thrive in a rapidly changing world. One of the other things that is also a strand in your work, Gary, is the idea of knowledge exchange. I mean, that's that's sort of where we began, where you're saying, look, uh, climate change isn't just about uh, weather changing. Um, farmers get that, but what they don't get is that they, they don't necessarily have the knowledge to confront and to manage these new pests and these new sort of biological threats. But the idea of knowledge exchange, in, in addition to seeds, I mean, seeds are fine, but you, you also know, need to know what to do with them and you need to be able to exchange the knowledge and the culture that goes with them. What examples of that are you uh, encouraged by? Well, first of all, that's such a great um, point that, that we need to remind ourselves of all the time. Where I am infatuated by seeds. Frankly, I still see the traditional knowledge associated with them as more valuable and perhaps more at risk than the seeds themselves. We only need to go back to the story of Pelegra reaching the south to remember that it's not just uh, corn seed, but the traditional knowledge or lack of it that affects whether a plant can nourish us or not or cause diseases. And so it's not the crops themselves, but the cultural connections with them that allow them to nourish us. Well, so in terms of those cultural connections, are you seeing them being made in in ways that that make you optimistic about being able to fight climate change? I believe so. Uh, For instance, um, there's some rare potatoes um, grown from uh, the Monterey Peninsula in California up to Sitka, Alaska, that uh, were introduced by the Spanish directly from Chile and Peru rather than from the smaller gene pool of uh, potatoes that went to Europe and then came back to the New World. And I have been involved with their conservation and promotion through slow food chapters in the Pacific Northwest. And when I talked about the successes there in Sitka, Alaska, one time, a, a Clinkett woman came up and she said, well, my family has one of those potatoes. And We want to try to figure out a way to share it with other indigenous peoples in Alaska and Canada who live inland because sea level rising is affecting our potato ground. So now um, it's being grown uh, inland in Alaska through an intercultural exchange that then provides some of the potatoes back to the clinkets on the coast. So this kind of thing where the climate change geographers call Assisted migration has been talked about for endangered species of birds or reptiles or orchids where we intentionally move them out of harm of climate change. But it, it's kind of a clunky idea for wild species, but an excellent idea for willing cultural exchanges among kindred people. And so it, the idea of food sovereignty is not to control every food intellectually and economically the way a Monsanto or a bear crop science or a Semenis might look at it, but it's to make wise decisions about who you voluntarily share those resources with in a broad sense. It's more about whether the original caretakers remain in control and in reciprocity with the people with whom they share those resources. 
Um, I have a, a question kind of along those lines, but from a different perspective about peppers, because I think that when I talk to people about certain peppers or certain peppers I've used in recipes or when I've had a certain dish with certain peppers, it's very much like a secret club, like a little, you know, secret society <laughs> of people talking about these peppers. And um, and I wondered if you might have any any stories about these types of exchanges that you've had with people about um, the way that peppers are used and the recipes they're used in and certain peppers they've eaten or tried or you know, had an experience well, with? Well, yes. I, I mean, one that strikes me is in the Chasing Chili's book with uh, my colleagues, Kurt Fries and uh, uh, Craig Kraft. And, and that's that uh, um, we, we were very interested in hearing that an African-American tradition around uh, chili pepper found between uh, Baltimore and Philadelphia had somehow been maintained and was being revitalized. And an African-American historian um, named Michael, forgive me because of my concussion, I can't remember his last name, had really done some interesting research on this. And it was that the pepper was likely introduced during the Thomas Jefferson era, but uh, Michael was able to trace back the chain of events linguistically about how this uh, particular fish pepper was related to African sauces, which were a terrific way to um, accommodate the flavor and texture of this pepper, very different from Mexican-American sauces or or Northern European sauces, and other people who had not been exposed to the the Pili Pili tradition and Berberet sauces of North Africa couldn't quite figure out how to use it. And so there's whole networks of people, informal networks, that explore these things today, just like those African-American crab shack, short order cooks figured this out. And it was really not the elite like Thomas Jefferson that kept this chili pepper and its uh, distinctive uses in the sauces going, but uh, the lowest paid uh, people in the Baltimore and Philadelphia economies, the short order cooks in these crab shacks. Yeah, so I was just wondering, um, I just had a quick question about whether hotter weather makes for hotter chilies. That's a great question, Tom. In essence, it's a combination of hotter weather and the hot, dry winds that come with that weather in many places that increase the pungency of chili. So where I am on the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the very same chili variety might be uh, twice as hot in a summer-fall regime where hot, dry winds hit in August and September right as the chilies are finishing ripening. And uh, what happens is that bell-like characteristic of of chilies, uh, tissue that we call carpal tissue inside the chili that makes those uh, little partitions is where all the hotness is. And in this hot, dry weather, uh, the resins that carry capsaicin, the pungency principle in chilies. When the chilies shake on the plant, that spreads the pungency throughout the fleshy tissue of the plant and makes them much hotter. And 
Gary, you've, you you have written a book called Why Some Like It Hot. Why do some people... I, 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 my first uh, interaction with chilies was when my grandmother was uh, munching away on these tiny, incredibly powerfully hot green chilies. <laughs> and, you know, I, I couldn't look at it without breaking a sweat. And she was just, just chewing on them like the toothpicks. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, why is it that, that some food cultures have really embraced this food uh, and others haven't? To make a long story short different cultures and their genetic populations around the world vary in their sensitivity to pungency and bitterness. The same thing happens with animals. Uh, mammals are hypertasters of pungency and avoid anything pungent where birds don't taste them at all. Hmm. In essence, what is most interesting to me is that there's uh, a certain degree of acclimation or learn behavior to be able to tolerate hotter and hotter chilies, but it's bracketed by your genetic predisposition to hot and bitter foods. There's a great number of spicy foods, not just chilies, that break people out into a sweat and cool them off and and, uh, reduce microbial damage in uh, meats if they're put into a curry sauce or whatever, that, that the, the chilies and other spices have an antimicrobial effect that's more important in hot climates. Oh, so I've got this all wrong, haven't I? Because I, I'm, I'm thinking my grandma can uh, munch on these chilies and she doesn't break into a sweat and she's, she's fine, and I break into a sweat and there's something wrong with me. But in <laughs> fact, what you're saying is the sweat is actually part of uh, some sort of interaction with uh, a, a hot environment where eating chilies helps you keep cool, and that's one of the reasons to do it. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so I don't have any direct answer to compare you and your grandmother, <laughs> but that's just a guess. Um, Gary, I have a, a question. It's a selfish one because I have to know how to do this. But how, if you get chili, hot chilies on your hands, and these chili, the seeds inside on your hands, and your hands are burning, or any part of your body's burning, <laughs> what's the best way to get rid of that and cool that off? Well, there's two things that I think of, um, and one is that that uh, uh, washing with with soap and or other uh, chemicals that take off the resins that carry the pungency principle um, can immediately reduce that. So, washing your hands with soap. Uh, certain doughs. Uh, people say that when your throat is hot, to eating a bread or bread dough helps, and Mexican friends of mine say that they grew up uh, eating masa or, or corn tortillas to do the same thing, and I think that the main uh, uh, rule we have is one of etiquette to the people uh, we live with and love is never touch your lover with hands uh, that have uh, <laughs> been, uh, handling chilies all day long. Or, or yourself. Or, um, <laughs> or, or yourself. So to speak. Or, <laughs> Oh, I have an, I have another question. I wondered about this kind of special space that peppers fill in the mythology of how we understand their presence in the food chain. And um, even just thinking about ghost peppers and what those represent. You know, I, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the mythology of peppers. Well, that's great. Uh, peppers were used uh, ritually and as a vermifuge and almost like uh, frankincense and, and other uh, plants were used in the old world. Uh, world to sort of uh, 
freshen the air and clear the air before they were used as a vegetable. They had ceremonial significance. They're in the origin myths of the Weechol people. And um, my former neighbor, the uh, famous uh, integrative medicine expert, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, um, calls chili peppers a psychotropic plant. In other words, it's a mind-altering drug. It's not a hallucinogen, but it clearly changes enough physiological processes in your body and particularly in your brain that your receptivity to sensory inputs and phenomena around you shifts. So to say that uh, chili peppers is a psychotropic drug would be like saying nettles, truffles, or uh, a whole number of other herbs and plants and fungi can affect your uh, behavior and your perception without giving you uh, hallucinations. And I think uh, indigenous cultures picked up on this very early in their exposure to different kinds of chili peppers. The ghost pepper is just on another level, of course, because um, it can be a life or death altering drug. <laughs> I mean, uh, when they started offering it in a San Antonio cafe a few years ago, I think something like one in 10 customers who ate whole ghost peppers had to be rushed into the hospital. So that's a little bit of uh, life alteration for you. So, Gary, of all the chili peppers, the entire variety that you know from the Middle East to Mexico to the American Southwest through Louisiana, et cetera, et cetera, if you had to, use, if you had to choose one chili pepper to eat, what would it be? And what is your favorite sort of chili-centric dish? Okay. Well, uh, I uh, am, am like a, uh, a romantic who who is smitten by every wondrous thing that passes him by. And the, the, so I can't choose a single pepper. I'd say the Chimayo pepper of northern Mexico, the Chile Colban of highland Guatemala, and the Aleppo pepper have, there's ways that people process it with all three that give it this smoky, rich flavor that regardless of the heat, comes through in a remarkable way. Sometimes it's not smoke as much as it's juxtaposition with rock salt Mm. that brings out something in chili peppers that three cultures independently have come upon. And then I have to say, I was just down in Oaxaca with some wonderful ethnobotanists last fall, and the seven moles of Oaxaca, I think, are one of the highest achievements of cuisines anywhere. And I argue in uh, my recent book from University of California Press, uh, Cumin, Camels, and Caravans, that that's because it's taking some uh, culinary techniques and and principles that emerged in the world in Persia and spread through the uh, Arabian Peninsula to North Africa and into Spain that then came into the New World, that the moles of Oaxaca and Puebla, Mexico, are the perfect distillation and expression of the convergence of old-world Mediterranean cooking techniques accommodating new-world spices like chili peppers and uh, achiote and other uh, minor ingredients like wild oregano's. 
We really appreciate you talking with us, Gary. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. I think it's a risk on your part to get someone as um, as sort of Tourette's about chili peppers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you all for your great work. That's, thank that's, you. That's really lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary. Take care. Keep in touch. Gary Nabhan is the W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at the University of Arizona's Southwest Center and author of Chasing Chilies, Hot Spots Along the Pepper Trail. You can find out more about Gary and his work to build a more just, nutritious, sustainable, and climate-resilient food shed spanning the U.S.-Mexico border at his website, GaryNabhan.com. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. On our last episode, I said that the next episode would be an interview with Dr. Glenn Stone about golden rice, but we did peppers instead. So our next episode, we will talk with anthropologist Dr. Glenn Stone about the incredibly misunderstood world of golden rice, how this wonder crop fell from grace and cast dark shadows on conversations about child nutrition and equality. Also, make sure you never miss a show. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes or on SoundCloud. And please leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think of the show. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. What is your favorite pepper? Does anyone have one? I have one, and it's an, you're going to be like, you lame ass, because it's the Serrano. But I love it. It's good pepper. I love it's a good solid pepper. You know, right? I, I I I love chipotle. I mean, I just like that that, that just smoke. I like yeah, the smoke. Yeah, that is nice. So I'm gonna name a pepper that is a subset of chipotles. Mm-hmm. It's the chile morita, morita, Ooh. and it's a small. I, so the chipotle comes from the jalapeno mm-hmm. pepper. It's a yep. dried, yep. smoked, yeah. smoked dried jalapeno. The morita comes from some smaller pepper. It might even be serrano. I'm not sure. But it's a little shriveled up chipotle pepper called marita that they don't sell in adobo. They don't mm. sell it in cans. You can only get it dried. And it's spicier and smokier. And it's just got a great texture. And um, I use them every chance I get. They're a little hard to get in the United States. You can get them at a place like Fiesta Market that, that yeah. caters to Latin American community. And I bring them back from Mexico every chance I get. Oh, my God. So, okay, another quick pepper question. So what's your favorite way or how do you prepare peppers? What's your favorite way to prepare and eat peppers roast and peel or with dried chili peppers i have a real thing for dried chili peppers but i love fresh ones as well but toast the dried chili peppers and then soak in water and then do whatever else you're going to do when you toast them you like put them in a toaster oven no i put them on a a hot skillet a hot dry skillet no oil Uh and sort of press them down and then turn them over and get the other side just for just for 15 or 20 seconds. Nice. Nice. Okay. And then you put them under water. And then I'll rehydrate them with some hot water. Why do you do that? Because they're so hard and dry. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so kind of tough. Um, but I'm going into the weeds here, but I do have a salsa where I don't do that. And it's called salsa matcha, which is a big thing in, um, in southern Mexico. And it's dried chilies. Morita is a classic one. You take them, toast them, kind of cut them up with scissors into smaller pieces and puree them in a blender with a little garlic and a little oil. And you get this sort of chunky paste mm. of pepper. And then you also create this pepper oil. And um, and I put it on everything. Um, and when I first make it, I have problems 
like Raj is alluding to, because I, I overuse it. Um, I'll go a, a couple of weeks without it, and then I'll make more of it. And um, salsa matcha. It's gorgeous. Great stuff. Oh, my God. And you, Raj? Well, I mean, oddly, of course, I mean, chilies are these uh, new world phenomenon. Uh, and so they, they were brought into Indian food fairly recently, I mean, you know, in, in historical time. But... Um, but there's still this this sort of fantastic version of just cheese on toast with chilies on, um, and it's it's just oh, serranos yeah. on. It's just oh. it's it, it's my comfort food. I have it for you know um, for, for, from when I was younger, and you know, my mum used to make these just regular melted cheese sandwiches, but with the chilies on, and all of a sudden it oh, it's so lovely. It just gives it gives it gives cheese on toast the flavor that cheese on toast really wants. That's gorgeous, and we have that in the form of quesadillas here in Texas. Oh yeah, when you grew up in Texas. Yeah. Uh-huh. The cheese on toast. Oh, my God. That sounds great. That's a, you know, it's just so simple. With, where do you put the Marmite, then? Underneath the cheese. Okay, good. On the This Song podcast, you can hear Emily Haynes and Jimmy Shaw from the band Metric explain how hearing Teardrop by Massive Attack early in their musical relationship inspired them and kind of terrified them. It was sort of a mix between feeling like anything was now sonically possible and that I would never achieve anything. You can listen to this song on KUTX.org or wherever you get your podcasts.